I'm excited about the book of Mark, and um, our script reader for today is Bob Foe. So Bob, if you want to come up here and do that. Bob has also been here from the very beginning, him and his lovely wife, Eloise, and they have worked and sacrificed and given their all for the, the good of Revolution Church and the glory of God. So give the foes a hand. We really appreciate them and we love them. And before Bob starts reading, he's just going to share a quick word of encouragement for us. How do you turn it on? It's on. There oh, you okay. There you go. Sorry. Hey, Gary asked me to share a few words, and <clears throat> I guess as I look back eight years ago when we embarked down this road, this journey, to start a new church in Pearland, and uh, you know, we thought we had a pretty good pastor, so we, we, we thought, well, what could hold us back? And, but what we really didn't anticipate, I don't think, maybe Gary did, but is all the doors that God opened for mm -hmm. us. The uh, providing us a place to meet free of charge. Um, and one right after the other, you know, it was just like the doors opened. And it was really an honor to serve, to serve the Lord. And I think by doing that and making the commitment that we did to stick with this church and to, to do whatever it took really helped the growth, our growth, my growth in my faith. And I guess that's the main, the biggest impact. Gary asked me to teach a class I've never, I had never taught before. And just teaching that class and preparing for it every Sunday really opened my eyes quite a bit to the scripture and, and what God's word has for us. So that's really the biggest impact that, that we've had. And I'm here today still. And I want to tell you that being around everybody else that's here really continues to help solidify that in me and help me grow. And it's very important. The fellowship that we get here to carry us through the whole week. So that's what I would say. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that very much. All right. We are in Mark chapter 2. Follow along on the screen as Bob reads for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, 
said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. So this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. <clears throat> so years ago, there was uh, an investigative journalist at the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist, and he did a lot of research, and he was a, a big writer for the, the paper, and his wife became a born-again Christian, and it totally annoyed him. He couldn't stand the fact that she had changed and was into all this religious stuff because he knew that all that Jesus stuff was just a myth, and that religion is just a crutch, and he, you know, all the standard atheist line, atheist line of thinking. And so he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to prove to her, I'm going to use my investigative journalist skills to prove to her that Christianity is just a farce and that Jesus, there was no Jesus and he didn't do all those miracles and he definitely didn't rise from the dead. So he started researching this, doing the way he had researched other things and writing for this major newspaper. And in the process of it, he became a Christian because the proof was so overwhelming that Je there was a man named Jesus, that people witnessed his miracles, there were eyewitnesses, that he said, I will rise from the dead after they crucify me. And sure enough, that he did. And you cannot find his body and there were so many eyewitnesses, and not only that, but tens of thousands of people who were willing to die for what they saw. That doesn't sound like a myth 
or a legend. And his name was Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel actually now teaches at the Houston Baptist University. And this is what he said. He said, to continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. I simply don't have that much faith. It really does take more faith to, believe in a- to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Because actually science and the facts are on our side, not on non-believing. Every single one of us in this room, there is an aching in our hearts. In fact, Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in our hearts. There is this sense that there's something more than this. Just like a brand new duckling breaks out of the shell, has never seen a pond before, but can smell the water and follow the mother duck to the water, get, jump in and swim. Just like that. Never seen a pond before, but they know that there is a pond to go swimming in. And, and birds know how to fly. They all, it's just instinct deep inside. And there is something inside of you that says there's more to life than what I'm doing right now. So I, with that in mind, I challenge you to study the Gospel of Mark along with us. Learn about this man named Jesus, and you see for yourself if he is real. It is dishonest to say, oh, I don't believe in Christianity, and you don't take time to study it. To deny something so important and so big, and yet you don't even look into it, that would be, that would be a dishonest disclaimer. So here we are in Mark chapter 2, and there's three basic points I want to go over with you this morning. There's the forgiveness controversy, there's the friends controversy, and there is the fasting controversy. And one of my favorite preachers to read and listen to is Pastor Tony Morita, and I've borrowed this little three points from him this morning. I want to give him credit. I've actually exchanged emails with him. If you're ever in North Carolina, go to his church, okay? Great man. Um, So let's talk about the forgiveness controversy. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum, Jesus made Capernaum his hometown. It's very likely that he lived with Peter and Andrew and Peter's wife. And so that's what he called home. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? And his mom and dad fled to Egypt, right? Because Herod wanted to kill all them. When they returned, what town did he live in? He lived in Nazareth. But then when he started his ministry, he made his base Capernaum. We learned about a lot last week, but it's a, it's a town right there on the Sea of Galilee. It, fishing is the major industry. And so the fact that Jesus called fishermen to follow him, well, the odds were in his favor because many, many people fished and did that for a living. And the town was approximately 1,500 people. Well, Jesus had been gone for a while teaching. And when he came back in, he didn't announce, I'm coming back or whatever. He just kind of came back and went home. And everybody's like, hey, I saw Jesus this morning. He's home. And word spread. And everybody in town was like, man, we got to go see Jesus. Because the last time he was here, man, he threw down. And the teaching was amazing. And the miracles were awesome. And we got to go see Jesus. And so how did that word spread to 1,500 people where the whole town shows up at his door? Word of mouth. And you know how the gospel still spreads to this day? Word of mouth. Yeah, the internet is powerful. Handing out literature and books is powerful. And all the, you can do all kinds of stuff using your social media to promote the gospel. But the gospel still is most powerfully spread by person to person, you having a conversation with someone about Jesus. And if a town without radio, television, or the internet could let 1,500 people know in a matter of minutes, okay, uh, or even days, 
then we can do it in our world today with all these advancements as, to utilize, to make the gospel known. Verse two says, and many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was what? Preaching the word, okay? Yes, we know that Jesus walked on water. We know that he fed the thousands. We know that miracles still happen today. But if you read the gospels carefully, especially Mark, you will see Jesus' priority was preaching and teaching the word of God. Last week we learned that for every time Jesus preached, two and a half times he taught. And the two go together. It's, again, it's like if preaching is like, hey, the house is on fire. You know, you're going to die. And teaching is stop, drop, and roll. There's the exit. You don't want to choose one or the other. You need both the information. So preaching and teaching go together and, and are vitally important as Jesus' ministry proved. Verse 3 says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, I think we could sit there and imagine this. And what I picture is almost like a gurney. But it says it's a bed. But a bed in today, we think of four post legs. You know, so his bed may not have had legs. Uh, but we don't know. But we, I picture a guy grabbing each corner and carrying this guy. And this guy may weigh 185 pounds. You know? So I think it would take four men to carry this guy. But when they get to the house, you know, they've heard that Jesus is there. Well, everybody else runs to the house. Well, they're taking their time because they got to carry this guy so they're slow. So no wonder they're the last to show. And they're like, how do we get in there? You know, what do we do? And, and they're like, but the, here's what's amazing about this. The determination of these four guys to make sure their friend gets to Jesus. Man, if we could only get a little bit of that determination to do the same thing, to think that the people we work with, the people who live in the same apartment complex as we live in, the people who live on our street, our relatives, the people we see at the family reunion, if we could just be that determined to get them to Jesus, I think we could change the world. We could start a revolution if we were to do that. It says, and when they could not get near because of the crowd, it says they removed the roof. <laughs> now, doing that today would be a big project, okay? But the roof then were meant to be, they, 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 sometimes they have compartments where they could lower things, but sometimes they were just thatch roof, and it wasn't that hard to tear them apart. It did take some effort. I'm not trying to minimize it, but it was very feasibly possible to remove a roof in a matter of 30 minutes and, and to do what they did here. And they made an opening. They let the bed down. Now, whether they used four ropes or one, we can't imagine that. I imagine it may be one as you're fixing to see. But what they, I'm going to show you a little clip about it. But they were determined that nothing was going to stop them. They could have, you know, walked up and said, oh man, there's a thousand people here. We can't get in. Hey brother, next week, we'll just, we'll, let's, let's just take you home. And they could have gave up. And man, how many times do we just give up? Well, I invited them. They said no, so I, I'm just going to leave it alone. Man, we need to be as persistent as these men are. It says, and when, they, and when Jesus saw their faith. Now, their obviously means plural. So whether he saw the four friends' faith or the four friends plus the, the paralytic, we don't know. But when Jesus saw, man, you guys are that determined to get him to me. And you are that determined because you actually believe I can do something. Would they have gone to all this effort if they really didn't have faith that Jesus could do something? Would they have torn up a roof? Would they climbed up on top? Would they even walked miles to get there carrying this guy who weighs a lot? Man, they would have done all that except they had faith. Faith makes you persevere even though times get difficult. Your job may be super difficult right now. Anybody say amen? 
okay? So your marriage may be really difficult. Don't say amen. Uh, you, you, your health might be really difficult right now. But let me tell you something. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you can move, remove roofs and climb up and carry heavy burdens. There's a lot of things you can do when you have faith. But what's interesting is Jesus, as you know the story, spoiler alert, he will heal the guy. But he did it because of the four guys' faith. You see the connection there? A lot of people, and I see people, people post it all the time, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. Um, it doesn't always work that way. Remember the blind man that Jesus encountered? And he said, would you like to see? And he's like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, you restore your sight. And, and Jesus just leaves him there. And, and the guy's like, hey, I can see, I can see. And the Pharisee's like, hey, who healed you? He goes, I don't know. He didn't even know who healed him. How could he have faith in Christ? He didn't even know who Christ was. He was healed because Jesus wanted to heal him. I don't even believe the guy was saved because his actions later show he kind of turned on Jesus and, they, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he confessed that Jesus was the one so Jesus would get in trouble. Again, that's a whole lot of speculation. But the point is, if he didn't even know who Jesus is, could he be saved and have faith in Jesus? Jesus decided, I'm going to heal you. You know, Jesus even heals lost people. Jesus can do all kinds of things. It's called common grace. He says, I cause it to rain on the just and the unjust. I cause the sun to shine on the lost and the saved. He, he does things for all kinds of people. So here's a, a misnomer. If you believe that your healing depends on the amount of faith you have, you are totally wrong. Because there's people who have enormous faith who never get healed. How about the Apostle Paul? Okay? And then Jesus said, you know what? It's actually not about how big your faith is. In fact, if you take the teeniest, tiniest seed, a grain of mustard seed, but you put it in the right place, you can move mountains. So it's not about how much faith you have. It's about what you put your faith in. Um, they, Jesus saw their faith, and that's when he chose to do this. You know, we all need friends like this to help us get close to Jesus. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger activity. It is not something you do on your own. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to try to be my best this week. I've got to try not to sin. I've got to do this, and i just got to count on me to do this. No, you need the family of God. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need relationships. You need someone you can text and say, hey, I am having a horrible day. Could you please pray for me? You need to get with someone over a cup of coffee and say, hey, I blew it this week and I, I've really messed up and I may lose my marriage or I may lose my job because of my foolishness. And you need to have someone say, hey, man, I've been there too. I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help. You need friends. That's what life groups are all about. That's what this church is all about. You need people to help you get to Jesus. If you think that you don't, that's called what? Pride, okay? And you, you think that I can do this on my own. Let me tell you something. I know as a pastor that my church needs me to preach the word and to minister to you and to do all that stuff. But I can't tell you how much I need you. I, I need you more than you realize. Like I saw Larry Medina back there this morning. I just gave him a big hug and just said, man, I miss you because he, you know, he has to work sometimes and it seems like it's a, two weeks go by without Larry Medina. It's like, man, I, I, I want to see my Larry. You know, I, I need him. And I, just to his encouragement, because Larry's always smiling, always positive, you know. I realize like, not at home, he's not. I don't know. But anyway, I don't know. Is he? He probably is. I'm not, I won't ask you that in public. But anyway, but I, I could go through, I could name a bunch of Larrys in this room that I need you. I, I, I look forward to Sundays because I need this just as much as you need. We need close friends to help us to get to Jesus. So it says, when they saw their faith, he said, son, 
Your sins are forgiven. And we're like, what? <laughs> wait a minute. Every, there, there's a thousand people going, wait, what? he's paralyzed. Jesus, maybe you need to get your eyes healed, your blindness. You can't see the guy's paralyzed. He did, they didn't bring you to forgive his sins. What, what? In fact, do you even know this guy, Jesus? Can you see that he can't walk? Oh, did he sin against you, Jesus? And now you're saying you're forgiving him? I'm sure everybody's going, what? What, what is that about? It, he, he came for a miracle, you know? Um, but let me tell you something. I don't know if the guy in the bed knew what his biggest need was, but his biggest need was his sin problem. You see, even though his legs didn't work, his whole soul was paralyzed because of sin. Everything about him was dead and he needed new life in Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus had said, rise up and walk, and the guy left with his sins not forgiven, those legs would be burning in hell for all eternity. You see, Jesus knew what his biggest need is. Do you know what your biggest need is? Your biggest need is to be forgiven. And, it, and if you know Jesus Christ, you know with all, without a shadow of doubt, all your sins, past, present, and future, have all been forgiven. And that's the greatest thing Jesus could ever, ever do for you. If he chooses to heal your legs, your ears, your eyes, your marriage, your finances, your job, if he chooses to do that, that's icing on the cake. But your biggest need is your sin problem. There was a, a, a headmaster of a psychiatric ward in London, England, and he said, I could release 98% of all my patients today if I could come up with a solution for their guilt. You realize what guilt does to you? It, it just eats you alive. And just think about it. If you don't know Jesus Christ and that guilt is weighing heavy on you and you know that you're going to answer for it someday, it will drive you bonkers. It will, it will mess with your mind. So Jesus healing the soul and forgiving the sins was more important. And I'm sure it shocked a lot of people. Now, some of the scribes, which were the religious people, the lawyers of the Bible, so-called, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Again, they didn't say this out loud. Why does this man speak like that? He, he's blaspheming. And again, all this is going on inside their head, inside their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Man, they're exactly right, aren't they? They didn't realize this was God in the midst forgiving sins. Their theology was right. But they're, again, they're saying all this in their hearts. But imagine, imagine thinking this in their hearts, but they're not saying anything because they don't have the guts. And then immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, 41 times in the, in the gospel of Mark, immediately Jesus turns and perceiving his spirit, they question within themselves, said to them, so why do you question these things? And they're like, I, I didn't say anything. Oh, did I say that out loud? Did I? I don't know. Um, and, and so they, Jesus reads their minds. And so here's a, the way the chosen portrays it. Jesus of Nazareth! I saw what you did to the leopard on the road this morning. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leopard. That's a rope! Put it back, man! If you are willing, Rabbi, I know you can do this. Uh, 
get out your tablet at least. I don't know. No, I don't think so. He's got room in there? Yes. Can you believe we're really here for this? Yes. Down. Whose authority do you teach? Answer me. If you are willing, Rabbi, you know you can. Hey, I'm talking to you. By whom do you teach? Certainly not the authority of any rabbi from Nazareth. Where did you study? Your faith is beautiful. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. But I ask you, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? It's easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, my son, rise. Pick up your bed. So Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? That was from The Chosen. By the way, the app is free. Strongly recommend you, re you download it and watch it. So here's why. Number one, Jesus didn't fit their religion. They were all stuck in the way they worshiped God. And Jesus showed a whole new way of worshiping God. And they were stuck in the traditions of men and not the doctrines of God. And so we have to be careful at Revolution Church or any church that we don't get caught up in the way we do church to where Jesus can't come in and shake things up. 
And they were so powerful in their religion and so stuck in their religion that they didn't want Jesus to mess with any of that. I've talked to people before and I'd start sharing the gospel with them. Like, well, I don't know. My grandmother was Methodist. My mom was Methodist. I grew up Methodist. You're asking me to change. I'm like, no, I'm asking you to accept Christ. And, and, and we, we can get so stuck on our religion that if Jesus doesn't fit, we will hold on to that. And like the old East Texas phrase is, bite off our nose to spite our face. And we, we hurt ourselves in that situation. Um, they also had the fear of loss of power. They were very powerful. A lot of people looked up to them, respect them. Now all of a sudden people are following Jesus. And what we need to do is the same attitude that John the Baptist had is Jesus must increase, I must decrease. When you get concerned that other people are more influential than you are or more talented than you are or have more money than you do or whatever one of you list you want to go with, you need to be humble and not worry about that loss of so-called power or position. Maybe they don't think they that he deserved it. They probably looked at that guy and said, we know why he's paralyzed. It's because he was acting foolish one day and he fell and got drunk or what? who knows what the deal is. Or maybe they just know he know wasn't a good guy. Why are you healing him? He doesn't deserve it. Hey, the truth is none of us do. There isn't a single person in this room that is good enough to deserve Jesus' magical, not magical, supernatural hand on our life. There isn't one person. And we start judging others. In fact, you know, the primary source of anger is a, a sense of superiority. When you think you're better than other people, that's what makes you angry at them when they do things you don't agree with. When you've failed miserably and you know what a miserable failure you are and you see other people do stupid stuff, you're like, man, I hate that they're doing that too because I know how stupid I feel when I've messed up. Anger comes from superiority. Maybe they didn't think he deserved it and that's why they were going that direction. And then there was, there, there's ultimately there's two types of questioning. And again, if you're here this morning and you're like, I just don't know about all this Jesus stuff. I really don't know if church is the right thing. I don't even know about the Bible or if God is even real. That's great. Having questions is not a problem. There's two types of questions. There's one question is truly, honestly seeking that I just want to know. I don't want to make a dumb decision. And nobody in this room is asking you to have blind faith. The Bible does not teach blind faith, okay? The Bible says examine the evidence, examine the facts, and then make a decision. Okay, and so you may be questioning whether all this is real. And that's fine as long as you keep an open, honest heart and you genuinely ask God, God, if you're real, show me in your word. I will, I will read the gospel of Mark along with this church and I will find out for myself. But then there's other people who are like, you know, if that stuff's true, I gotta stop sleeping with my boyfriend. If that stuff's true, I can't, get part, I can't party on the weekends. And I got to stop clubbing because I know Christians don't do that stuff. And I know that stuff is, is bad. And so I, I can take Jesus or I can have a wild life that living the way I want to live. Eh, I don't know if Jesus is even real anyway. And I don't even believe all that stuff. And the Bible has mistakes in it. At least that's what a professor told me. And there's all kinds of contradictions. And Christians are all hypocrites. I think I'll stay with my life. And that is the dishonest questioning. That's not really being real about it and really, really being honest. Because if Jesus is the God who spoke the worlds into creation and all, in, all that there is, and he created you and he created your heart and he created your heart to receive him 
and your heart's empty without him, and he came to earth and died for all the things you've done, if that all is true, why would you not want to give all that up for him? And by the way, he has much better stuff than this, okay? He's the one that created the, the sensuality and the pleasure. He just has a right place and time for it. So which type of questioning are you doing? So he says, Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? The key word in this verse right here is say. If you miss that word, if he just said, which is easier, to, then that would mess it all up. But he says, which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk. Because the Pharisees are giving him a hard time about this. Um, so, see, from a human perspective, saying your sins are forgiven is easier. Because everybody like, okay, his sins are forgiven. How do we know? We can't see inside his heart. We don't know. Do you just said it and guess we believe it? But how do you verify that? You see, rise up and walk would require a miracle. But from God's perspective, saying rise and walk is easier. It's just another miracle to God. That's no big deal. Forgiving the man's sins require the brutal death of his beloved son on the cross. That's the hard part. You see, saying forgiven sins is easy. Doing the forgiving of sins cost Jesus his life. It was very difficult. And so that's why Jesus is kind of speaking on two levels here. He says, but that you may know, and I think the you here is the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people, so that you may know, because they kept asking, whose authority do you teach from? And that was coming from another gospel. That wasn't something that the chosen just added in. They did ask him that. Um, it says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And they knew right well, only God can forgive sins. But he's saying, hey, I am the Son of Man, which that's the title Jesus used about himself more than any other title. It's not a lesser title than Son of God or God. It's actually more of a title than others. If you read the book of Daniel, it talks about the Messiah. God in the flesh would come as the Son of Man. Anyway, he has the authority that I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that can forgive sins. And again, that's what you and I need most is the forgiveness of sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Pick up your bed and go home. So you see, what, what you have here is a sign. The Bible calls them signs and wonders. That's the word that's often used for miracles. Over and over again in the Bible, it talks about signs and wonders. A sign is something that points to something, right? A wonder is something like, man, I wonder how that happened. How is that even possible? It leaves you speechless, Okay, it's not, cannot be easily explained away, oh, it was just an adrenaline rush, or they really weren't that sick anyway, or it was the medicine. No, a wonder is like, I have no explanation for how this happened. And this wonder points to something. Don't fall in love with the sign. You need to see what the sign is pointing to. It'd be like traveling down the highway like we all do, and you see the Bucky's sign and you get excited. You don't even need gas, but you're going to go to Bucky's because it's Bucky's, right? I mean, cleanest restrooms ever, and you go in there and you get a bag of beaver nuggets, and then you go on a sugar high for the next couple hours while you're driving. And you, and you, but imagine if you pulled over on the freeway on 45 or I-10 or whatever, there's these million Bucky's, and you got out and you took a big selfie in front of the sign, and you guys sat down and had a picnic right in front of the sign. Silly, right? But that's what people do. Jesus says, when I do miracles, it's a sign. It's pointing to something. Don't sit here and hang out at the sign and say, oh yeah, miracles, miracles, signs and wonders. The signs point to something. You see, let me go to this one first here. It says, but he answered them, and this is in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a what? A sign. 
the people are like, oh, miracle, miracle. Give me a miracle, Jesus. Give me a miracle, Jesus. He says, but I'm not going to give you a sign except for one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now think about this. If you've, you've read the, the story of Jonah, right? Does Jonah prophesy anywhere in there? No, not by direct words. It's his story is the prophecy. What happened to Jonah, right? He was swallowed by the great fish. He was in the fish for three days and three nights. And then he came out of the fish, okay? And that was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Let me just stop here for a second. People go, oh, you really believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale? Well, yes and no. Yes, he was swallowed by a great fish. And then why does the New Testament say great fish and the Old Testament says whale? It's because if you go back in history, and you can, archaeology can confirm this, anything that was a very big fish in the sea, they called a whale. It wasn't because they were ignorant, okay? They didn't classify it the way we classify it today. And, and we even say, that's a groundhog. Um, it's not a hog. That's a prairie dog. Um, it's not a dog. That's a koala bear. Um, no, it's not a bear. Do people think we're stupid because we have all these labels that are not exactly accurate? No. They called anything that was like more than 30 feet long in the water, they called it a whale. So Jesus was swallowed by some great fish. And that's physically possible. It's happened in history. Not a lot, but people have actually been swallowed by great fish and have stayed there. One guy in... Um, the Philippines was spit up by a great fish and he was bleached looking because of the stomach acid of this great fish. So it does happen. It is physically possible. Anyway, so the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is talking about the grave. Jesus says, Jonah's story is a prophecy and this is the sign that is the most important. This is the prophecy that points to the main thing. What do signs and wonders point to? They point to the gospel. They point to the main message of Jesus forgiving sins. So it says, and he arose immediately. That's one thing I don't like about the story is Jesus says, take your time. <laughs> the Bible says, no, boom, hey, look at this, I can walk, you know. I don't think it was gradual, you know, and again, I, no, no producer's perfect. I guess it's more for suspense. But I think it went boom, just like that. Not just twinkle toes a little bit and whatever. I think he popped up and is immediately, he picked up his bed and he went out before them all and they were all amazed and did what? Glorified God. Anytime God does a supernatural work in our world, he needs to be the one getting the glory. If, but if you watch these, uh, these charlatans on television supposedly healing people and smacking people in the head and falling over. You look who there is getting the glory. It's them in their $500 suit and their Rolex driving off in their, in their Mercedes. They're getting the glory. Jesus made sure that the glory went to, to God and the people glorified God through all this. And it says, we never saw anything like this. So now we come to the, the second controversy, the friends controversy, the friends controversy. So he went out again beside the sea with all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And what you have here in the Greek is a tense that we don't have. It's like an imperfect tense. It means they were constantly coming to Jesus, constantly coming to Jesus, over and over again coming to Jesus. And he was over and over again teaching them and teaching them and, and teaching them. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be coming to Jesus and Jesus constantly is teaching us and the word of God is what's most important. And again, Jesus' emphasis was on teaching. And, 
And teaching is what I mentioned last week about how that is so important that we walk away and say, what did I learn this morning? You see, I could give you a great motivational speech on how to communicate better at work and you could walk out all pumped up and motivated or you can come out better knowing Jesus and knowing more about him and his word. And that's where our emphasis will continue to be at Revolution Church for the next eight years, Lord willing. And, he, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, which we know that sometimes disciples have multiple names. It's kind of like when you're in trouble and your mom calls you, you know, by your first and middle name, or sometimes they call you by your middle name. Levi was also Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. He was at the tax booth. So he is at work. He's in the middle of his work day, okay? And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And again, the chosen does a really good job of laying out what could have been the relationship. I don't think Jesus walks up to a total stranger and says, hey, I don't know you don't know me, but hey, quit your job and come follow me. I, don't, I think that sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. I think Jesus had already developed a relationship with Matthew. Matthew probably saw some of the miracles or heard about the miracles and he was testing it. And again, uh, the chosen does a wonderful job with that. But I want you to compare Levi's cost of following with the fisherman's cost of following. When Jesus said to Peter and Andrew and James and John, leave your fishing business, we know actually because several chapters later the fishing business was still running and that the dad uh, was running the business with servants. They had something to go back to because even after Jesus died, what did Peter say? I'm going back to fishing. He had something to go back to. Matthew didn't. When Matthew quit that job, it was done. And tax collectors made serious cheddar. I mean, he was banking it like nobody's business, making lots of money. And he walked away from all of it and could never go back. So Matthew's sacrifice was pretty enormous compared to what the fishermen did. Not that they didn't also make a sacrifice. So the, the different, there's a difference between being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. A lot of people claim to be Christians. I'm like, oh, so you're a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're living with your girlfriend. I'm, I'm making up this conversation in my head. I'm not saying I actually said that to somebody. And, uh, and you don't go to church. You don't believe in organized religion, okay? And you haven't read your Bible in months. In fact, you don't even quote a Bible verse. And, and how many people have you told about this Jesus? But you're a Christian, there's an amazing difference between being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus. If somebody is walking that way and I'm walking this way, I cannot be their follower, right? My steps have to be following their steps. I have to be doing what they're doing, saying what they're saying, loving the things they love. And then I can call myself a Christian. But in America, we got 68% of people claim to be born-again Christians and if that were true, our country would not be in as deep trouble as it is. We need more followers of Jesus and less Christians. We need people to do what Matthew did, what James and Peter did, to walk away from things and make the serious sacrifices. It says, and as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, his Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were there. Okay, imagine this, 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 this dinner going on. And the tax collectors and the sinners, and sinners sometimes is code word for prostitutes. And the reason you see those two go together is because if you're a tax collector, you are a traitor to your country, your family doesn't want to speak to you, no girls want to date you or marry you, and so you are in it for the money alone. So the only girls you can be with are the ones who want your money. 
And so that's why you saw those two hanging out together. And there was a whole bunch of them there at Matthew's house. And Matthew had money, so he probably had a big house and could hold a lot of these people. And they were reclining with Jesus at the disciples, with the end of the disciples. And there were many that followed him, okay? So this is amazing here. This is a recipe for a great dinner, okay? Follow the ingredients here for a recipe for a great dinner. If you want to have a great dinner, you need a new excited believer. You need a Matthew. Someone who just got saved and is like, yeah, this is awesome. This is the best thing I've ever experienced. And number two, you need to bring several of their lost friends because they're still connected with them, right? And then you need to have several followers of Jesus mixed in with them who don't mind rubbing elbows with people who are like that because that's what they used to be and they can relate to that. And then you need Jesus. And when you put all this together, this is a recipe for a great dinner. And this is what we as a church need to do more of. We need, we need to have events and plan things like a barbecue at our house, play in tennis, have a, a play date with somebody, have another family, two or three families over for dinner, and mix it up. Have some lost people, some church people, and definitely have Jesus. And when you do that, you're going to see gospel conversations starting to happen. So you guys go to the same church together. So you guys believe the Bible? I've always had questions about the Bible. Well, let me tell you what I've learned about the Bible. And you start sharing Christ. And these are the situations that we need. I mean, yeah, we could go out and knock doors like the Jehovah's Witnesses. That may or may not work. Even by their own numbers, they know it's not a very effective. Or we could do this. We could use gospel conversations over dinner, over tennis, over coffee, over inviting people to different things to share Jesus Christ with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now notice, every time you see Jesus with sinners and tax collectors, what is he doing? He's eating. It doesn't say Jesus is clubbing. It doesn't say Jesus is token. Okay? It doesn't say that Jesus is, is doing anything immoral. He's doing the most neutral, friendly thing you can do. Okay? If Pastor Gary uh, was going into a so-called gentleman's club. You guys are like, oh, Gary, don't do that. I'd be like, yeah, I agree. But if I invite people over to my house and I have dinner, nobody's going to say, hey, that's hypocritical. I'm doing the very loving thing. And that's, that's what we need to do. Many times in evangelism, we think we have to be like sinners to, to reach them. No, you don't. You need to do one thing that they like to do, and that's eat. Okay? We're really good at eating. We like barbecue. We like all kinds of things. Let's do that thing together. Everybody likes food. And, said, and he said to his, his disciples, so the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus, but do they have the nerve to talk to Jesus? No. They start talking about Jesus and they start saying, well, why, why, is, your, your pastor, why is your rabbi doing these things? And they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a great question. Why does he do it? Why did Jesus share a meal with all of Levi's lost friends? All these people who nobody else wanted to hang around with. Because he loved them. That's why. And if we love people genuinely, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to open up our homes. We're going to open up our wallets. We're going to do whatever it takes to have meals and conversations with lost people and share our lives with them. These, these things actually work. To Think about, pray about how you're going to implement this into your lifestyle. It says in the... Uh, let's go to the next one here. So... Why should we eat with sinners? Because they need Jesus just like we did. You see, sharing the gospel is not like, I'm holy and righteous and you're a bad person. You need to be like me. No, no. It's, I'm a beggar who has found bread sharing where I found it with another beggar. 
I'm a homeless person who doesn't have anything, but I now have found everything in Jesus. Hey, homeless guys, join me over here. That's how we have to see ourselves. And that's the humble way to see ourselves. And when Jesus heard, he said to them, so Jesus overhears the conversation, say, you want to talk to me? Talk to me. <laughs> I'll confront you in a conversation. I, I, liked, I liked in the video how when they kept asking Jesus the question, he just stares at them like, whatever, you know. I, I, I think that was portrayed pretty well. It says, he says, those who are well, and I notice I added the quotes here, okay. Those who are well have no need of a physician. He's not saying that they actually are well. These are people who think they're well. I mean, he makes it very clear that the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are lost, and they're children of the devil. But they think they're well, okay? And the reason I had the quotes is because in Greek, there are no such thing as quotation marks. So it, I want you to understand the emphasis there. They have no need of physician. Oh, you think you're fine? That's great. You don't want a doctor. But those who are sick, and he's talking about being spiritually sick, when you know your life is falling apart, when you know that you cannot fix this on your own, those are the ones who realize, man, I need a doctor. And that's Dr. Jesus. He says, I came not to call the so-called righteous people like you. I call, came to call sinners. And Luke adds, I came to call sinners to repentance, to make it abundantly clear. Mark is very short because he doesn't use very many words. So I'm going to let Luke be a commentary on that. So look at this right here. This is our church's purpose statement. We say, let's say it together. Worship God passionately, love people genuinely, start a revolution. And as I've taught before, there's two points under each of these. Worship God passionately means we worship together weekly. This is so important. This is not something to be skipped. If you have to watch it online, great. But if you can be here in person, that is so much better. Togetherness is more important. But we don't want to be a Sunday morning only church. Amen? We want to be people who walk with Jesus how often? daily. And then the second thing, love people genuinely, which means two things. You love your life group. You're connected with people. You have four friends who are taking you to Jesus, okay? But you don't let go of your lost friends either. You hang on to both. And hopefully the two can come together. And then you start a revolution by serving Jesus and sharing Jesus. But if you look at the emphasis right here, Loving your life group, that's your four friends. That's the people you need to be connected with, you need to do life with, to help you through all the ups and downs, when your marriage is struggling, when you're depressed, whatever it may be, you need one another, but you need to love your lost friends. And if you don't have lost friends, you need to make some, okay? Um, I shared this before, but um, during COVID, one of the things I picked up was tennis, I started playing tennis a little bit with Charles. Then I found out Greg's a great tennis player, so I let them both beat me badly. And so I'm playing tennis with them. And then I played, started playing tennis be along with that same time, this guy who was a worship pastor at another church and another guy who was the sound guy at another church. So I had four different people I'm playing tennis with here. And now I'm like, wait a minute. All these people know Jesus. What's wrong with this picture? So I ditched Charles and Greg because I, I got tired of losing them anyway. And then I, I told the other guys, hey, I, I'm going to start playing. And I got on this app where you can meet people and play tennis with them. And now I have four friends who don't know Jesus that I play tennis with. And I'm able to share the gospel with them. And just the other day, one of them, Willie, calls me the other day and says, hey, Pastor Gary, how's your shoulder doing? He heard that I'd stop because I stopped playing for a while. I, and here I have a lost friend calling me asking how I'm doing. You know? And I've been able to share Christ with them to some degree, more or less, with each one. But that's so important that we do that, that we be a church that's on mission. And then we go to the third point here, the fasting com controversy. The fasting controversy. So John's disciples and the Pharisees, you talk about two extremes here. John's disciples were good, right? John the Baptist 
And of course, we know that John's disciples all started one by one, eventually following Jesus. And they asked John, are you, are you okay with that? Man, Jesus is starting to get more of your followers. And John's like, hey, that's the whole point I came. That he must increase, I have to decrease. But then there's the Pharisees who are bad. But they're both doing something religious. Do you see that? Lost people do religious things. Saved people do religious things. Fasting is a religious thing. Fasting is when you choose to, for a certain amount of time to do without food and sometimes do without water also. And in it, the point of it is to tell your flesh, I don't care what you want. It's what my spirit man wants. And every time you are hungry, it reminds you, you know what? Instead of eating physical food, I'm going to let Jesus Christ be my physical food. I'm going to be satisfied and receive my spiritual nutrition from him. And so why did John's disciples and, and disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus gives a great explanation here. So Jesus answers this question with three illustrations, or you can call them three parables. He answers it with a wedding feast, a worn-out garment, and a wineskin. And we'll go through these quickly here. So first, he's, Jesus says in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Picture of God the father, the king, giving a wedding feast for the son. The son is the groom. Who's the bride? We are. The church is the bride, right? And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both good and bad. See that? All types of people becoming part of the bride here, the wedding feast. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so you got the picture of the guests in, in that situation and the king and the son. And Jesus said to them, now, he, now we're back in Mark chapter 2, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So here's a picture of a wedding. Okay, there was two major events in the life of, of Israelis at this time, weddings and funerals. You're, and that's still somewhat true today, but really those were the two big events and there wasn't a whole lot, lot else going on other than religious festivals like fast, Passover. Um, but you got together with family, with funeral, you got together with family at the wedding. What was the big difference between the two? Here everybody's sad and not eating. When someone died that you loved, you usually would skip several meals and you'd be fasting while you're part of your mourning for them. When there's a wedding, what is everybody doing? They're eating. For Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding and he made more wine so the party could continue. Okay, so weddings you eat and you're happy and funerals you're sad and you don't eat. Okay, so that's, the, that's what we need to understand in this passage. And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can kind of fast. There's no, there's no point in fasting in that situation. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And the word taken away here means like violently, like ripped away, okay, from them. And they will fast in that day. And what is Jesus talking about here? It's crucifixion, right? He said the bridegroom, he said, we just, had, we just got married, just had a honeymoon. All of a sudden, your husband is ripped away to be killed. And then they will fast. So watch this. When Jesus was physically with his disciples, they were well aware of his closeness to, their closeness to Jesus and they felt his loving presence, okay? When Jesus was there in person. Fasting is a physical experience meant to make us aware of our closeness to Jesus and be satisfied with his loving presence, okay? We don't have Jesus physically in our midst. The closest thing we have to that is the body of Christ. That's why we need one another. Because we are the closest thing, one another, to having Jesus physically here with us. So here's what fasting does. It makes us aware of the presence of Jesus as if he was right there. And that's what fasting should do for us instead of food or anything else we try to find comfort in. So it's, and then he gives another illustration. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk or new cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch 
tears away from it. Obviously, when you wash it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. You see that? So take an old garment, whether it be a jacket or a blanket or something, and it's got a hole in it, and you patch it with a new cloth that's not been washed yet. When you wash it, that will shrink, and it will tear the, uh, the rest of it even worse. So the new cloth is, is talking about fasting or any, any attempt to add Jesus, doing something religious, okay? Taking a patch and put on, you know, trying to get close to God by fasting, whatever. But if you put it on an old garment, which means you haven't changed at all on who you are, you're going to make things worse. This is parallel to a story where Jesus says there was a man who had a demon in his home and he swept out his house and cast the demon out. And he cleaned out his house and cleaned up everything. And when he came home, there were seven more demons and it was worse than before. It's a picture of a man, I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to make my life better on my own. I'm going to get rid of these things. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that. And they do it all without God. Guess what happens? It gets worse. They give up crack, but now they're addicted to seven other things. Or they give up this and now they're, they're falling apart somewhere. And so they're basically just sticking their hole in the dike and trying to cover many different leaks. What do they need? They need a brand new garment is what they need. And see, here's what people try to do. They have a hole in their life. Their marriage. Their addiction. Their depression. I think I'll try me a little deep Jesus. I think I'll fill that hole. I'll patch it with Jesus. And what does Jesus say if you do this? If you make me just a little piece of patchwork, it's going to be worse, not better. If you try fasting you know, and just, or going to church or reading your Bible. Well, I figure if I do all this, then God's going to do this for me over here. You know what's going to happen? God's not going to do it. And you'll say, God failed me. You say, is God someone you just go to Vegas with and play cards with and say, oh, I did this. You should be doing that. Where's the payout? I put the money in the vending machine. Where's the snack? And you're treating God like, I do this, you do this. God doesn't work that way. God says, you give me everything. And we'll just see what I give you. You, you love me because I gave my all for you. I bought you. I paid the ultimate price. I own you. What are you saying? I have to do this. I, I remember one time years ago, somebody came to me and said, Brother Gary, I've been going to church for four weeks in a row. I've been reading my Bible every day. I've even been going to life group and my husband's still not on board. What, God, why did God let me down? Like, you, you're, you're bargaining with God? Say, God, okay, if you do this, I'll do this. It, do, it doesn't work that way. You see, Jesus isn't a little patch we put on our life. Jesus is our life. He's the whole cloth. We need to throw away the old garment and accept the whole new garment that comes when we know Christ. You see, he says, no one, he's a third illustration. No one puts new wine, in other words, it's, it's not fermented yet, it's fresh grape juice, into an old wineskin. If he does, when the wine, as it ferments and it expands, the wine will burst the skin and the wine and the wineskin will be destroyed. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So you put new wine, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God coming into your life, into a new believer. You have to be born again. You try putting the miraculous and the supernatural into your old self, it's going to make both look really bad. So here, here's what Jesus says. Through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He is a new garment. He is a new wineskin, okay? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For sins. 
Whose sins? Raise your hand if it's for your sins. He died for all of our sins. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous Gary. I should have been on that cross. He trades places with me. And why did he do it? That he could bring me to God. So that he could bring you to God. So he could bring all of us, no matter how good or bad we think we are, we all need to be brought to God. And how did he do it? By being put to death in the flesh and he was made alive. He rose again on the third day in the spirit. Jesus lives today and he wants your life. He wants to take control of your life. He's bought your life. But he's not going to force his love on you. He's a gentleman. He invites you to open up your life to him and to receive him as your savior. You see, Jesus saw, solved the forgiveness controversy. He says, I am God. Who can forgive sins but God? Well, hello, here I am. And if I say his sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. He can do the same thing for you. Jesus solved the friends controversy. He loved everybody from the worst of people in town to the best of people in town. He loved everybody. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this that a man, what? Lay down his life for his friends. Think about that. The God of the universe calls you his friend and dies for you. He solves the fasting controversy. He says, you know what? You don't have to fast while I'm here. You can't just try to do religious things. You need a whole new cloth. And that's what I'm willing to give you through what I did on the cross, that you can be a new creature in Christ. This is the time of the service where we pray. And, and if you know for sure you know Christ is your Savior, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and just go to your Heavenly Father and ask Him to open up eyes so that lost people can receive the gospel. There may be one or two people that are here this morning that you don't know about being born again. You never heard about being saved, but maybe you're willing to do it today. I was nine years old when I heard a message much like this and I got saved. You can do that today. You can be watching online and you like, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that the emptiness in your life. You've tried patching it with things and you would rather just have a whole new cloth. So I, what you need to understand is you're a sinner who has offended a holy God who deserves punishment on a cross to die, but Jesus took your place. And he says, I gave my life for you. I want you to give your life to me. So right now, would you give your life to Christ? Would you accept his forgiveness? I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. This prayer does not save you, but in your own words, in your own heart, you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I can think of a list a mile long of things I've done wrong and the guilt bothers me. But Lord, I understand that you died in my place. You paid the punishment that I deserve and that you were buried and that you rose again, proving that you were God in human flesh, dying for the sins of mankind. So Lord, I accept that forgiveness. I give you my life because you gave your life for me. And I make you the Lord of my life. That I, I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of Jesus, not just a, quote, Christian. Lord, I, I thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> if you made that decision today, man, I would love to talk to you. This is my cell phone number. You can call me or text me anytime. And I could talk to you about your next step with Jesus. If you need to know more, we could do that as well. All right, Miss um, Amanda, would you come up? and help me with question and answer time. And you could text the questions in even now. I see a few coming in here. Um, here we go. And I remember the one that I did, I messed up earlier. Okay. okay, all right, yeah, it's on. All right, here we go. Question number one, is God real? Man, great question, great question. And the classic illustration I like to go is if I found 
um, this watch, this Apple watch on the ground. And I'd be like, wow, look at that. It tells me the time. I can see if the Astros have won. I can see if it's going to rain tomorrow. This, this little watch does a lot of pretty cool things. I wonder how it got here. Um, I, you know what I think happened? I think there was an explosion and light, and it, all these metals came together and lightning struck it and it just started ticking, keeping time. Isn't that the most ridiculous thought? And yet your brain is a million times more complicated than this little watch. And you want to tell me your brain and, and all these animals and all these human beings just happened by accident, that there was non-life, non-living material in this primordial ooze and lightning struck it and all of a sudden it became alive. And then it decided, I'm going to be a fish. Oh, I'm going to turn these fins into claws. I'm going to climb a tree. And all that stuff happens. And you think that's just all an accident. The proof that there is a God, the, the proof that there is a creator is you look at creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, you can't find salvation in creation. You find the creator in creation. It, the word of God reveals the creator's son, who is Jesus Christ. So just look at the world around you. I challenge you, just on a good night, look at the stars. And then you tell me that, God, that all this just happened by accident. All right, next question. Why doesn't the dinner passage just come out and say prostitutes? There seems to be no issue using the word many other times in the New Testament, including Matthew. Is it just a Mark thing? I don't know. Um, I've wondered that myself. Um, I think it was, um, this is my theory. I think it's meant to be a broader category that included prostitutes. Because like not all immoral women get paid, okay? Or men, okay? So I think it included those who were in that lifestyle or somehow connected to it, but not necessarily that specific vocation, okay? But that's my theory. Um, so I, I think that that would make logical sense that he's trying not to narrow it down to just one thing because it's not. So that's why, you know, because uh, they, were, they were included in number, but it wasn't uh, exclusive to those people. Now that you have new tennis partners, have you improved? Yeah, I did until I tore my shoulder, tore my rotator cuff, and then I, I haven't played in like nine weeks, and I hate it. Um, but uh, and I didn't tear it <laughs> playing tennis. I tore it when we were lifting a stack of church chairs, and I, they were stuck. And you know how to get stuck, and you pull? And I pulled really hard, and the chairs didn't move, but my shoulder did. So, but it, pray for the healing, because it's, it's not getting there. But I, I, I was getting better and better. And so it was funny because the three main guys I played with, one guy named Bailey who works for the Houston, Texas, which much better than me, and he'd beat me 6'2", 6'1", 6'2", all the time. And another guy um, named Everett that I knew from Boundstown, we were even. We would play like tiebreakers all the time. And then the other guy, Willie, had just kind of picked up tennis. He was young and athletic, but he didn't know tennis very well, and I would hammer him. <laughs> so it was, it was good. It was fun. And that, I'm just reading the questions. By the way, how is your shoulder? which you just answered. Pray for, it, um, pray for it healing, yes. If someone has great guilt, how do they start to rid themselves of that guilt? So the key is they don't rid themselves. Jesus does. If you try to rid yourself, you're putting a patch on an old garment, mm -hmm. and it's not going to work. You, who can forgive sins but who? God. God. You're trying to forgive yourself, and that's the problem. Okay. In fact, you'll hear that comment often. Oh, I know God's forgiving, but I just can't forgive myself. And when you hear yourself saying that, one big sin you need to ask for forgiveness for is arrogance. Seriously. 
because you're saying your judgment's higher than God's, okay? If I go to court, like here in Harris County, and I, I lose a case, but I appeal to the federal district judge, and he overturns the case and says, no, you are innocent, should I still walk around saying, man, Harris County said I'm guilty. Harris County says I'm guilty. The higher judge will say, wait a minute, I am more powerful than them. I said you're innocent. And so if you're saying, oh, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, God's saying, oh, hello, that's your judgment. My judgment's higher than yours. I say you're, you're, you're innocent. And also think about this. If Jesus paid the price for all your sins and you're still walking around moping about them, it's like, yeah, Jesus, that was cool that you did that. I don't need that. I want to wallow in my guilt. So um, that's, that's the thing. So um, yeah, I won't get a longer answer than that. Okay. Matthew 13, 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. How do we reconcile this verse with what you mentioned about someone's amount of faith not being a requirement for a miracle? Great question. Great question. And in Bible interpretation, it's the same as real estate. Location, location, location. Where was that verse found? Who was he talking to? And what was the occasion? He said he would not do miracles in their place at their time because of their faith. He didn't say, I'll never do miracles anywhere because of people's faith. He meant, in that town, I'm going to teach them an ob object lesson. But I can go around healing people all the time if I want to. And who people don't even know me like this blind guy over here. So don't put Jesus in a box where he does the same thing every time in every situation. So that would be my answer to that question. It was that specific thing. It'd be like, let's all go out and build an ark. Well, I just read about that in Genesis. It says, build an ark and out of gopher wood. That was for a specific guy at a specific time in a specific situation. Okay, location, location, location. Good questions. Any more? Uh, more a comment. Mark never actually walked with Jesus. Um, so he's not counted in the 12, yes. So he's not one of the disciples. In fact, some people have the theory, so you know at the end of Mark, it says that there was a young man following Jesus as he's being led to being crucified. And all he had on was like a robe and they grabbed him and he ran, he got out of his robe and ran away naked. Many people think that's Mark. So Mark was amongst the disciples in the greater group, very likely, um, but not amongst the 12 because it's speculated that Mark is probably, when all this is happening, is like anywhere from 13 to 14 years old. Okay. And then 30 years later, he's an adult and he's hang and Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. So that may mean that Peter led Mark to Christ. Okay? And we know that Mark goes on a missionary journey with Paul, and then they have a breakup and all that stuff. So anyway, Mark eventually became a follower of Christ. When this was happening, we don't know if he was. I I, I like the theory of him being the guy that ran away. Um, and it's interesting that parallels between that and Joseph, but that's a whole nother sermon. What's a good C name for a girl? <laughs> chrysanthemum I'm just joking <laughs> um, I think you want to go one step farther CH so I like Chelsea um, of course Charity's already taken in that situation if you don't know the Holtons are expecting their fourth so um, anyway we miss you guys they're watching because she you know she, obviously because she's expecting the game she's staying at home um, Chelsea's good um, anyway Cherish, Cherish. Ooh, that's neat I like that anybody else have one Okay. Charlene's a little too old school for me. I don't think I can do Charlene, but I don't know. But I know if you, some Charlene. people have that. I think that's your mom's name, right? Yeah. Oh, so wow. you can call her Charlie. He didn't mean that. I think, no, I do mean it for, for this today and age. 
You know, it'd be like naming your daughter Peggy. Just kind of like, hey, that's good for my grandma, but not for me. That's my mom's name. Yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> okay. Moving on to another question. All right. Why do they keep removing parts of the Bible and make a new Bible? Um, I think the first part of that question is flawed. I don't know the parts are being removed. Okay, so here's, here's what I think they might be talking about. Okay, so we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, okay? Thousands of manuscripts. We have more manuscripts about the New Testament than any other document of history, okay? So Plato, Aristotle, um, um, the, the, what's the guy that wrote the, the Odyssey? Oh, um, Homer, Homer's Odysseys and all the written by Homer. We have more documents of the New Testament, all those combined, okay? So whenever we find somebody, but we have human beings copying these things down and whenever they make mistakes, we have 3,000 other manuscripts to say, wait, but this one right here is not exactly right. So that's how you know. That's why God gave us thousands and tens of thousands of manuscripts. So what the King James did is they included all kinds of phrases that were added as notations. For example, and I'm going to make this one kind of up. Let's just say, for example, in the New Testament, when it talks about Easter, there's no Greek word for Easter. That Easter came on hundreds of years later. But a scribe added the word Easter so we knew what time of year they were talking about in Acts. It was a notation by a scribe. And so it got added into the translation. So the notations by the scribes, when they would write little notes off to the side, it didn't contradict anything going on in here. It just, it, they thought they were adding to it to help understand. It's just like when you see the word the or a in italics in your Bible, it means because to understand this in English, you need that word, but it's not in the original Greek. So what later translations started doing was saying, no, we really shouldn't include all these notations by the scribes in there. We could put them at the bottom, but we shouldn't be in the text, okay? So for example, when you read about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, um, when people prayed in those days, they always ended the prayers with, yours is the power, yours is the glory, yours is the kingdom forever. That's how they ended their prayers. But Jesus didn't say that then. So they say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, blah, 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 blah. And then they added the notation because that's how they prayed but it's not in the original manuscripts. It, does, it doesn't contradict the Bible. It doesn't, it's not anything. It's just someone's notation to, to help. Okay, so like if someone wrote in 1950, put your food in a radar range, you'd be like, what's a radar range? And if you were to translate that into 2021, you'd say, put your food in a microwave. Oh, okay. I just added the word microwave to help you because it used to be radar range. Okay, how many of you are old enough to remember having a radar range? Okay, thank you. All right, so nothing important has been taken out. Uh, scribal notes have been taken out and put in at the bottom where you'll see footnotes about that. And not, there's no major doctrine or anything important that has been adjusted. We're talking about minor words. I'm going to read this how it says, and then maybe. Can you be a Christian and a follower of Jesus? I think maybe they meant, can you be a Christian and not a follower of Jesus? I don't know. I'm well, let me answer both. Okay. If they're referring to the way I said earlier, that we need less Christians and more followers of Jesus, again, I'm not saying Christian's a bad word. I'm saying that type of Christian where you say, oh, I'm a Christian, but you don't, your life doesn't match the Bible at all. That's what I'm talking about. So yes, you can be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. If I answer the question the other way, in case they typed it wrong, can you be a follower of Jesus and not be a true Christian? No, the two are the same. So I'm just saying, don't just wear the label, live the life. That's my main point. Mm, that's good. Uh, just a comment. Best baby name is Czechoslovakia. 
Czechoslovakia, which is not a CH, it's a CZ, but that's pretty clever. You can call her Czech for short. Okay, very good. All right, all right. So right now we're going to um, ask God to bless the food. All right, Patrick, would you say give thanks for the food for us? Sure. Okay, just use this microphone here. So let's all stand. And after the amen, we will move chairs and roll up carpets. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this church for eight years and growing and going. And Father, we still want to follow your will and follow your path. So Lord, as we celebrate eight years, we pray that you bless us food for us and bless us fellowship and this friendship that we have. And we want your presence to remain with us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.